Good afternoon, and welcome to another great edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Rob Hunt of Linnea Holdings, uh, holding it down out here in sunny Southern California. Really excited to have uh, guest Stu Gall or Stu Sala, pardon me, back for his third appearance in the show. So we'll get to Stu in a few minutes, but. I am thrilled that today is uh, February the 28th, which means that we should always be thinking about February 28th, 1980, which is now 42 years ago, where the Jerry Garcia Band played one of their um, you know, seminal works at Keene College. So for all of you out there that are familiar with the show, I think it was released as a, a Garcia Band uh, release that was called After Midnight. But, you know, the thing that makes this, uh, this recording so special at the time in the spring of 1980 uh, Garcia Band was actually playing the song After Midnight into Eleanor Rigby and then back into After Midnight. And I remember the first time I heard this was about a 17 or 18 year old, just how completely blown away I was by what they were doing with uh, the guitar work on this. So maybe we'll start off the show with a little bit of, uh, of, of After Midnight and uh, then move in to introduce Stu. show before but uh one of the great things about the garcia band that just really you know makes them to me a lot different than the grateful dead is the majority of songs that garcia band played were covers and you know with the grateful dead you know it was probably 50 50 maybe a little more than 50 50 of grateful dead originals to covers but with jgb it was you know primarily covers uh that of course was jj kale's after midnight covered by eric clapton and a bunch of other people since but you know that's um just pure fire on the Garcia side. So I think the uh, the lineup from, from that night was uh, Garcia and Khan playing guitar and, and bass, but with um, with Ozzy Ehlers on the keyboards, who's my absolute favorite keyboard player, even more than Melvin or, or Merle, and uh, Johnny DeFonseca playing drums. Let's, uh, let's say hi to Stu Salo. Stu, welcome back to the show, and uh, you, know, you want to talk some Garcia band today? Absolutely. Why not, Rob? How you doing? I'm good, man. Good to have you back. Yeah, I'm a little jealous of uh, you being down there in Southern California when it's seven degrees here in Boulder, Colorado. But uh, I'll, well, I'll I'll try to forgive you for that. Well, we uh, we're, we're actually cold for us, which means I'm wearing pants today, which is rare. Uh, but you know, to be expected in February. That is as opposed to shorts, not as opposed to nothing at all, of course. Yeah, I'm a I, I'm a big gym rat, and uh, uh, I can't miss my day of exercise. And I actually w- was seen today walking in and out of the gym in shorts when it was seven degrees out. So I guess, I guess you and I have, uh, the, 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 we're flipped. You're wearing pants on a cold day at 60 degrees, and I'm wearing shorts on a seven-degree day. So go figure. There you go. <laughs> all I know is it's raining down here, and we're ready for it to start snowing up in the mountains. So I think all that snow is heading your way to Colorado in about three days. Uh, but we're, we're finally getting dumped on for the first time. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. We appreciate it. So, so Stu, I understand you saw the, the Garcia band quite a bit starting back, you know, when the Grateful Dead was on hiatus, when it was just Jerry and Merle, you know, kind of going into the first iteration with the JGB. Right. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was actually one of my... Uh, 
one of my favorite periods in my uh, in, in my Grateful Dead life, which uh, started when I was about 19 years old, and it continued uh, to the present present time. I had the misfortune of seeing my first Grateful Dead concert during the so-called Last Nights at Winterland in October '74. Uh, I was at those shows and then wound up trying to figure out what to do with my affinity for the Grateful Dead while they were on hiatus from October uh, 74 through June of 76. And of course, we turned to uh, the Jerry Garcia, the so-called Jerry Garcia band. It wasn't called the Jerry Garcia band back then. It was uh, called Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders. And boy, it was really uh, a great substitute for the Grateful Dead. In a lot of ways, the Jerry Garcia band uh, really fe featured Jerry a lot better than it featured uh, him in The Grateful Dead, uh, as hard as that is to believe, uh, because there was no other guitarist, and Merle Saunders was um, an adequate soloist, but you know he obviously uh, didn't carry the solo parts in the, in the same way that Jerry did. Uh, and so, you know, we, we went and saw the Jerry Band uh, as, as often as possible. We saw them in various places like Winterland and Keystone Corner in, in Berkeley and the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach. Maybe you've been there. That's kind of down close to your area. And, you know, I have very fond memories of the Jerry Band, and uh, I, I, really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the shows that I saw. But, of course, you know, always anxiously waiting to see if the Grateful Dead was going to resurface. And, of course, finally they did. Have you seen uh, Have you seen them much? I saw Garcia Band play, I think, forty seven times. But who's counting? Yeah, exactly. And I saw another four that was uh, Garcia and Grisman. So all total, you know, away from the Grateful Dead, I got to see Jer Jerry play fifty one times. But there was a period there in like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, where I think I saw, you know, I think I saw the last thirty seven Garcia Band shows in a row before he passed. So yeah, <laughs> so wow, I saw quite a few. I, I I didn't miss many for for a period of about three years there. And uh, there's no secret that I'm a much bigger Garcia Band fan than I am a Grateful Dead fan for exactly the reasons you just mentioned. If you're if you're a pure Garcia guy, then uh, then any distraction away from his playing is you know, I'd rather I'd rather put him you know by himself on a stage and, and hear nothing but just you know, pure Jerry Licks and anything else, but surround him with a couple good musicians like he was, you know, in this lineup. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like during hiatus, that's when we got the first JGB's post-Garcia Merle, which was, I believe, August 5th, 1975, was the first true JGB show. That could be. Speaking of, speaking of some of the great musicians that he played with, and you and I are kind of bookends on this, because, you know, I saw most of my Jerry shows early in their history, and you saw, you saw more, more in the late history. But in the early history... Uh, there was a period of time when he was playing with a guy named Nicky Hopkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have a funny story about Nicky Hopkins, actually, and, and the Jerry Band in, uh, at Winterland in 1975. I think it was uh, December 29th, 1975, to be exact. Um, I was right up against the stage. And uh, the show was, um, I can't remember the opening act, but uh, the second the second act was uh, the Jerry Garcia band, and the third act was Kingfish, with Bob Weir and Dave Torbert from New Riders of the Purple Sage. Uh, so there we were, right up against the stage, and Nicky Hopkins, who's a brilliant pianist, uh, he, he was 
I'm going to guess he was drunk because he he was inebriated in some fashion. I I don't know if it was alcohol or or drugs or a combination of alcohol and drugs, but he was he was so fucked up that um, he didn't know where he was. It was pretty obvious to those of us who were standing close to the stage that Nicky was so confused he didn't really know where he was. So here comes Bill Graham onto the stage walks over and leans over to Nicky at, at his keyboard. And because we were right up against the stage, we could literally hear this conversation taking place. And he says, Nicky, you're, you're at Winterland. You're playing with the Jerry Garcia band. And so, and you can hear this on the recording. There's a recording of this show. I, I, again, I think it's December 29th, 1975, if you want to dial it up on re-listen. And you can hear, literally hear Nicky Hopkins saying, I'm not exactly sure what's going on at the moment. <laughs> so, so that would track because Nicky quit the band two nights later. His last show with Garcia Band was December thirty first, nineteen. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. Well, well, that makes sense. Uh, but the thing that's interesting about uh, about all of that is that, and this was true of Jerry also. God bless him. But no matter how fucked up these guys were, they they could still play brilliantly. You know, and, you know, you, you, you kind of, as a musician, I sometimes wonder about this because you know, there's a guy playing a band, a, cover, a, a classic rock band called Hindsight. And there's a guy in my band who tries to get me high before every show. And sometimes I submit to this and, and I wind up regretting it because I wind up forgetting the, the lyrics and it's embarrassing. And so I, I'm, I'm often found... Uh, uh, saying to him, uh, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'll see you after the show. I I got a I got a show to do here." Uh, but a lot a lot of these musicians, it doesn't matter how drunk they are or how stoned they are, they still can play brilliantly. And I suppose you could argue that they play brilliantly because they're under the influence. I mean, it's it's you know this this you know it, this didn't start with rock and roll. I mean, they this you know it's it's legendary that that jazz musicians used to drink and play jazz and that sort of thing, and so the connection between drugs and alcohol and music is is a pretty interesting subject. Yeah, for sure. And, and Nikki, you know, while we're on the subject of Nikki Hopkins, for those of you that don't know Nikki out there, you listen to any you know touring um, Rolling Stones from the seventies, and then he played with the Who, then he played with the Kinks, and he played with Jeff Beck, and, uh, and you name it. Nicky Hopkins played with everyone. We brought his name up once or twice on the show previously, but if you really look at the canon of work that guy put forward, the only problem is that he was constantly fucked up. I mean, like, like consistently to the point that like no band could really handle him. And part of it, from what I understand, is because he has had a long-term battle with Crohn's disease, and ultimately Crohn's disease is what killed him. But you know, he found relief from from drugs and alcohol. But Nicky was, you know, he's famously just an absolute mess. But what a brilliant keyboard player yeah so and when garcia formed um the garcia band for the first time in 1975 it happened to be during a period where nikki was living in san francisco instead of in london and he said hey you know i'm gonna put this band together would you want to play with me so he only played briefly for i don't know maybe a couple months and then after that uh Jer jerry switched him out to a guy named james booker who he kept for only you know a couple shows and then after that keith Gottschalk jumped in there for the next year and a half Right. So once you know, once the Grateful Dead came back, then you know the Garcia band turned into many ways for about two years. They're kind of just a, a second Grateful Dead with with Keith and Donna in it. But you know, Nikki in the early days, 
there's some brilliant 1975 recordings of, of him when he's on and not, you know, not completely banged up. But I got to tell you, of all the guys out there that played uh, keys in the Garcia band, and, and you know, for me, my entire tenure with the, with the band was definitely with Melvin Seals. But I, I got to say that the person that's on the recording that, that we're listening to right now, Ozzy Ehlers, uh, is definitely my favorite. And we've talked about him before. Like, there's a, a Positively Fourth Street that's out there that he played on from the, uh, the Keystone, actually, and not the one in Berkeley, but the one down in Palo Alto. That is just, you know, brilliant. And at some point we'll play, you know, excerpts from that as well. But, but, but if you haven't heard it, you know, after this After Midnight that we listened to the clip on before, uh, Jerry slows it down, really, really slows it down and gets in this really deep groove and then uh, kicks into the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby just as an instrumental. And so I don't know if, you have, if you've heard it before, but if you haven't, you know, maybe Dan should play a quick little clip of that. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. You know, um, just, just to jump in here and talk about the Beatles for a second, have you ever seen the show The Beatles Love at uh, the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas, the Cirque du Soleil show? I have, and i got to tell you from a production standpoint, I worked in music production for a long time, and when I watch shows, I don't just watch what the, the musicians are doing or what the artists are doing. I watch to see what the people behind you know the scenes are doing to, to prepare you know for the next act. Yeah. And I have never seen like more stage changes and more just like mm-hmm. that show is just so unbelievably intricate as to like what they accomplish. But yeah, it's amazing. I love that show. I've seen that show four times. Um, as the publisher of Boulder Weekly, I was invited to come to a, a press what a preview. That's what that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, before just right when it was on the verge of being launched, it may have been the night before the first show. And, you know, something about that show, and, and to all of you uh, folks listening out there, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's at the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas, and it's been playing there for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years? 20 plus years now. Really? More. Uh-huh. More and more. I saw, I saw it, I want to say, in like 1997 or 98 is when I, when I first saw it. Okay. You know, it, it brings up the subject, what was it that was so special about the Beatles? You know, when you have a concept like the Beatles that, uh, where, where you have sort of like the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts uh, concept going on, uh, you have to wonder what was it that made them what they were? How did they become a cultural icon more than a rock band? And of course, the same thing is true of the Grateful Dead, and, and, uh, and it's the same answer. And the answer is the life-affirming messages that these bands brought to the world. And, of course, in the context of the Beatles' love, it was the focus on love. It was the all-you-need-is-love principle. Uh, and, and, and so many of the Beatles' songs feature uh, the concept of love and that sort of thing. And similarly... Uh, the Grateful Dead have so many life-affirming affirm- messages. And if I may transition into talking just a little bit about uh, the Deadhead Cyclist, 
this is this is what the deadhead cyclist my my book the deadhead cyclist is is all about it is about the life affirming messages in the poetry of the grateful dead and these life affirming messages really need to be magnified especially now in these divided times that we live in you know we're 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 really facing some real serious challenges as as a race as a human race on this planet and i think this speaks to uh, why the Grateful Dead has endured so long, you know, what has it been, 26 years since Jerry died? What other band, you know, is, is, still, is still around 26 years after the de facto leader of the band uh, is, is no longer around? And, and what is it about the Grateful Dead that, you know, that, that has created this kind of longevity? And, and, and I think it has to do with so many of these life-affirming messages that, and I tried to focus on a lot of these life-affirming messages in my book, uh, which, by the way, has 52 chapters. The book is finished right now. Uh, it's in the hands of my agent, and now we've moved from the creative process of writing the book and editing it to marketing the book. And we're looking right now at several different publishers who we're interested in uh, working with on getting this book published and hopefully out to the public sometime uh, this year. And there are so many life-affirming messages in the book that we've been trying to focus on in our uh, conversations with, uh, about marketing the book and how the book could be, could be, marketing, could be marketed. And, you know, one of those, I'll just give you one example, okay? Let's see, I got so many to, to, to choose from, but, but I'll say that one of them that I think the dead typified is authenticity. Uh, we're living in a world where they're trying to make you be just like everybody else. They're trying to make you be either one of two things, a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative or a liberal. You have to join one of these groups and if you don't join one of these groups and remain true to one of these groups, then, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be problems. And the Grateful Dead weren't about that at all. The Grateful Dead were about authenticity. Uh, there's a line in the song, a lyric in the song, um, Warfrat. I'll get a new start, live the life I should. And, and there's another one, uh, the heat come round, this is in... Um, uh, the other one, the heat come round and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day. These are these are statements of people, of characters in the poetry of the Grateful Dead and the stories that are told in the lyrics of Grateful Dead songs that encourage, that nurture authenticity. And that's just one of the themes that, you know, of so many themes that uh, I've covered in my book. So there are 52 chapters in this book. And uh, there's one chapter for each week of the year which, with a This Week in Grateful Dead History concert pick. And uh, I, I hate to deviate from the Jerry, uh, from the Jerry Garcia stuff, but uh, I don't have any... I, it would have been actually a smart idea to, to throw in a, a Jerry Garcia. I wish I'd thought of that, but maybe, maybe if there's a volume two, I'll, 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 go with, I'll go with that in volume two. But, you know, I, I think it's just these, these amazing life-affirming messages that, that I wanted to amplify and magnify because I feel that they're so needed in, in, these, in these difficult times that we're living in. And that's basically the, the structure of the book and the reason why 
uh, I, I think a, a lot of people are going to enjoy reading this book. Well, I'm looking forward to reading the book. So when you actually have it finished, you know, definitely let us know and we can uh, get our hands on a copy of it and we'll certainly discuss it on the show. So if you're in the marketing phase, uh, allow us to assist. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it would be, you know, it would be uh, helpful if... Um, if you wanted to uh, read a chapter or two and, uh, and and give me an endorsement for the for the uh, book jacket, Rob, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I would love to. Uh, let, let's actually look at some of those lyrics you're talking about because you know two very different lyrics. Uh, obviously, the one from the other one is a, an autobiographical line that Bob Weir sings about actually getting popped uh, for for you know yep. essentially the, the the cops coming by and arresting him. Technically, it really was, you know, smiling on a cloudy day. That's that's what he was arrested for. So, you know, uplifting, it's more of a kind of a thumbing your nose at the authorities on that one. But the wharf rat line that you mentioned of, you know, I'll get a new start, I'll get up and fly away, that that, that section is much more about a, um, uh, a person who's struggling with, with alcohol addiction, I think, and trying to get his life back in order. But really, if you know the song well, realizing the protagonist really has no choice, no chance to do it. You know, he, you know that their fate is pretty well already sealed at that point. Uh, it's, it's wishful thinking when, you know, the ultimate end of the conclusion of that song is, is recognition of not being any better than the person they are speaking to, no better than August West was. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure I agree with the premise that it's, that, that it's hopeless. I think you know, you can look at some of these problems that we're dealing with in our world right now and identify them as hopeless. We're hopelessly divided uh, as, as, a, as a people, uh, probably headed for civil war, a lot of people say, uh, you know, between, between different factions. I, I like to think that there's always uh, a, a reason to continue having hope, and, and, and it starts with your, your own internal dialogue. So even someone who's in a, a seemingly hopeless situation can get a new start and live the life they should. And even though perhaps you're right about the specific character in Warfrat, I, I like to look at some of these things metaphorically. I, I like to use the word dedaphorically. Uh, there's a lot of dedaphors uh, that I refer to in my book. And, you know, so getting back to the heat come round for busting me bust, and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day, you know, yeah, there's an autobiographical aspect of that. But you can take that out of context, apply it to your life, and think about the heat as being, you know, whoever it is that's trying to control your life in whatever way they're trying to do it, and making you be wrong for feeling the way that you do uh, for being happy on a cloudy day. You know, I, I, I like to take these lyrics and sort of take them out of context, unpack them, and look at them uh, dedaphorically uh, and, and see what, you know, how they apply, how they apply to your life. And I think that's another reason why the Grateful Dead have remained popular for so long. You know, here, here's, here's, an, here's another one. Uh, that that I that I focused on in one of my chapters. A little bit harder, just a little bit more, a little bit further than you've gone before. To me, this speaks to the subject of sacrifice and being willing to stretch yourself to accomplish your goals. It doesn't have to be in any particular context. Um, it's just it's just a life affirming. It's very positive. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. 
And I think that's what we need right now, and that's what I've tried to unpack in, in a lot of these lyrics. And that is a classic Garcia band line uh, from The Wheel. Right. As good as it gets to try to challenge yourself to go a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing is that, that I would point out, and, and again, there's, an, there's, a, there's a chapter in the Deadhead Cyclist for everything, but th there's, there's one, uh, the headline is, uh, I don't trust nothing, but I know it come out right. I think this is really interesting in these in the context of of modern times because we like to we're encouraged to think of these issues in black and white terms. Trump is bad and Biden is right or uh, Russia is bad or uh wearing masks is 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 wrong and getting vaccinated is right. And there's there's a lot of different uh there's a lot of truth on both sides of things. Although I, I'm, I'm not going to say there's there's much truth in in, in Donald Trump, but uh, uh, but but I but I would say that this I don't trust to nothing is a statement of mistrust, but I know it come out right is a statement of trust, and it's interesting. Or a statement of faith. Yeah, in belief, and it's interesting to see these kinds of things, these kinds of truths. We have lots of reasons to to, to be mistrustful. We also have lots of reason to feel that things are going to be all right. You know, both truths coexist. Multiple truths can exist. And I, I like that message a lot. And I wish we could focus more on finding ways to accept multiple truths as, as coexisting and talk to people who may have a different point of view than we have, but, but give them the respect that they deserve in hearing out their point of view and considering whether there might be some truth in it. And then maybe the same will be afforded in, in a reciprocal way to us. Yeah, look, I think that people need to realize the world isn't binary. And the problem with you know, social media is it tries to paint everything in a binary situation. So if you look at, um, you know, I always go back to the Chinese proverb of, you know, what is good luck and what is bad luck? And sometimes, you know, someone goes, oh, you know, the, my car got stolen. You're like, oh, terrible luck. And then it turns out that, you know, uh, there's a terrible accident right where you would have gone to work that day. Oh, great luck. You know, like, you never know, you know, what it is that, that's good luck or bad luck. And obviously, the, you know, the ability of hindsight, I mean, there's plenty of times we look at world events and think, okay, that's going to be cataclysmic for the following reasons. And Ultimately, it turns out completely different than any of us would have ever expected. So, you know, I, I've been laughing in the last like week or so, just watching social media, where everyone's transitioned from being an epidemiologist to now being a political uh, scientist. You know, knowing exactly what's, what's happening on the right. world stage with uh, with Ukraine and Russia. And the fact that matters, I don't, I don't think any of us know. Uh, you know, I, I know what my beliefs are as far as what I think fundamentally is right and wrong in the situation. But ultimately, we don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know what it's going to bring. There could be. You know, sometimes it takes forest fires to have green shoots, right? You never, you never know what ultimately mm -hmm. is the uh, is the right way. So when you think about you know Weir's line and playing in the band of I don't trust nothing, but I know it come out right. There's a certain like you know uh, Voltaire Candide kind of belief to that of you know if you sort of float through life, it's probably going to be just fine uh, if you don't take absolutely everything that you're doing so seriously. And I think the Grateful Dead were really playful in that way, and I think that Robert Hunter was really playful in his lyrics to to evoke those feelings. Very, very much so. And, and a, a very, very consistent theme in Robert Hunter's lyrics is the focus on nature. You know, I think we really came up against this with the pandemic. Uh, you know, one of my favorites is we can discover the wonders of nature rolling in the rushes down by the riverside. 
you know, I found myself during the lockdown, and, and by the way, a lot of this book was written during the, during the lockdown period of, of the pandemic, which forced me to sit down at my computer and really get some of these ideas down on, on paper, so to speak. No one does anything on paper anymore, but, you know, on my computer screen. And I found myself becoming increasingly uh, depressed about you know, being locked up in sort of a cabin fever sort of a scenario. And uh, this is where the deadhead cyclist part of, the, uh, part of my persona uh, came through because what did I do? I, uh, I, I, I suited up and I went out on my bike and rode around in the wonders of nature, uh, which is easy to do here in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, within, within half an hour, and of course I put in my, my earphones and was listening to a Grateful Dead concert while this was all going on, within half an hour I was feeling remarkably better. And the connection with nature, the need for connection with na nature has really deepened during the pandemic, I think. And, uh, and I found a lot of comfort in getting out on my bike, which, is, which was one place where I didn't have to wear a mask and just really being free for a little while from, from it all. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of, of focusing on nature, and, and there's so much of that in, in Robert Hunter's lyrics. You, can't, you can barely find a song that, that he wrote. Some songs have multiple. The song Passenger has so many, so many references to you know, fireflies and lighting the way and you know, all those. Uh, so many of the songs have, have, have references to nature. Another life affirming uh, concept there. Well, I think the other thing about you know cycling and being out in nature like that, and any sort of um, true athletic pursuit, is that if you actually are doing it properly, you're completely and totally focused on what you're doing. Like there is no, there is nothing else out there, which I think is you know like too much time is spent in front of screens, too much time is spent uh, you know doing things that I think people are trying to multitask. They're not fully focused on what they're doing. And I found that, you know, being on my bike, uh, I try to ride four or five times a week. Mm -hmm. I, I get completely and totally immersed in what I'm doing. And if I actually put on a Grateful Dead show in my, in my headphones while I'm doing it, that's kind of like the, the, you know, the perfecta. It's, you know, it's both because your, your brain is completely focused on the music while your, you know, visual and everything else is sort of focused on, on where you are. And the combination of the two, I find to be just unbelievably cathartic when, you know, everything else in my life is, you know, either dealing with conflict or other people's conflicts or dealing with screen time or parenting or all the rest of the fun stuff I deal with in my life that, um, that sometimes just having that moment of just being completely like, and, and I know our, our producer, Dan Humiston, another big skier, uh, like myself that I find, you know, skiing does the same thing for me. Like as soon as I drop into a line, the only thing that's in my mind is, is what I'm doing. that's right in front of me. I'm not thinking about anything else besides where three turns ahead of me is. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been on my bike listening to a Grateful Dead concert and heard a lyric that I've heard a thousand times in a completely new way. And it caused me to pull over off the side of the road, stop my watch, because I time all my rides and I've, I'm, I'm, in, I'm insane about, about the statistics and all that, uh, and, and get, out, get out my phone and send myself an email with this brilliant thought that I just came up with about a Grateful Dead lyric that I remember specifically one time this happened with the lyric, there's a dragon with matches loose on the town. I, I'd never thought of that, the, the, the way that it occurred to me on that, on that one particular occasion and how it related to, to COVID. Because 
because COVID was a dragon with matches loose on the town. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is, this is a great metaphor. I mean, it's so metaphoric, you know, the dragon with matches. I mean, obviously it's a dragon is completely metaphoric or dedaphoric. And I, 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 that, that's happened to me a lot of times. And it's because... I, I've, always wondered, I've always wondered why a dragon needs matches. Yeah, well, let's just say that I think the way that I explain that is that there's a certain potential energy that already exists within the realm of being a dragon. But there's, uh, and if I'm thinking back to my high school uh, chemistry days, uh, you have potential energy and kinetic energy. And I think you have the potential energy that exists simply by virtue of being a dragon. But when you light the match, it inflames things. That's what brings out the kinetic energy. I'm sure there's some scientists out there who are saying, oh, he's got the whole of the co concepts of kinetic energy and potential energy completely wrong. But, I, but I, I think you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's, yeah, the, the dragon is supposed to be able to, to, breathe, to breathe fire simply by virtue of being a dragon. But I think it refers to the way that under certain circumstances, a dragon's potential, destructive potential can truly be unleashed. That was kind of my take on yeah, it. Either way, it's just a fantastic lyric. I think, uh, I think that was a Mickey Hart lyric. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're probably right. Um, another, uh, since you mentioned Mickey, uh, I've, I've got this whole thing, a uh, uh, whole chapter on uh, the left-hand monkey wrench. I think we may have covered that last time, though, so I won't get, go into it in much detail. But yeah, there was it, there was you know some some real interesting stuff that I learned about the way the uh, what's the song what's the song with the left hand monkey ranch? Yeah, the greatest story ever told, and and then the uh, playing in the band the main ten uh, both came out of the Rolling Thunder album and 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 wound up being part of the Grateful Dead uh, repertoire. I don't think Mickey gets enough credit for um for his uh compositional uh contributions no i agree with that and, you know you always forget that, that other people besides you know robert hunter and uh and john perry barlow did write some of those songs and you know weir's written a few tunes and jerry's written a few tunes and uh and mickey sure has yeah but it's uh you know the, the contributions they've all made both you know lyrically and musically but i mean to your to your point and you know part of the, the reason i love what you're doing um with your project is I agree the uh, the the lyrics of the Grateful Dead uh, I think are, are timeless and there's a lot of songs that I'm very very convinced at this point will survive uh, for generations to come uh, and you know you talked about the fact that you know 27 years after losing the leader that's uh, you know we have to think that was uh, another 25 years after losing the original leader of the band being Pig you know so it wasn't just a question of losing you know one leader and, and moving forward but they've lost two and still moving forward and to this day you know the band's still playing and now we've got you know 10 or 12 iterations where they aren't like tribute bands like we used to see in like the 80s of like the zen tricksters in new york but actually like bands like j-rad and bands like um you know dso that are you know carrying the torch in a way that you know they'll last for years long after you know all members of the grateful dead are gone that you know people will still be paying you know to to go see the the music go see you know kind of the to to live what it what it means to be a deadhead it's uh you know we, we, we might not have the same circus that we had for years that you know travels from city to city but the uh ultimately the the music endures right and that's i think you know we we've we've hit on a few of the reasons why the music endures uh and there are probably more 
uh, we could, you know, and, and, you know, I've tried to come up with 52 of them, but there's probably, you know, 5,200 of them. Yeah, well, I think we, we try to get through at least a couple every week, and uh, it's always fun to get different interpretations. Yeah, you guys do a great job of that. Appreciate what you guys do a lot. Well, we love having other people on that, uh, that are as familiar with the music as we are, that are able to, to contribute and give their thoughts about, you know, about times, places, lyrics, events, and, and just stories. So, again, I always love it when someone comes on. And you're right, you and I bookended the Garcia Band. You, you basically saw Jerry play right when he started the Garcia Band, and I saw him all the way until he ended it, you know. So that was a, that was a, a solid 20-year period that, you know, you and I got to bookend two very different, you know, parts of what that band was doing, but really, really unique. I'm getting the sense that our time is thin. So, so I, so I wonder if you'll indulge me, uh, with just a, a very brief, uh, excerpt from the book. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, we talked a, a little while ago about the subject of authenticity and a, a big part of authenticity has to do with deciding what you want to do in your life. Who, who am I? And, you know, you, you've known people in your life who, who made good and bad decisions about career paths and marriages and, you know, things of that nature. I had a friend, um, uh, his name is Brian, who uh, worked really hard, uh, went to law school, became a lawyer, got a job at a, at a law firm. Uh, this was back in my Santa Cruz days. And uh, he came to me one night and said, Stu, I, I don't know what to do. I hate being a lawyer. And I've spent all this time and all this money going to law school and studying and learning to be a lawyer. I got this great job. I'm making a lot of money. And I hate being a lawyer. What do I do? And I said, buddy, you got to quit. And he quit. He got a great job in a different industry, in the... In the um, uh, supplement industry that he's been at for decades and he's been very happy and he's never regretted the decision that he made to reject who he thought he should be and to listen to his his inner voice that was telling him this isn't who you're supposed to be and so there's a there's a lyric that that relates to that of course uh, and it's in uh, estimated profit and it goes my time coming any day don't worry about me, no. It's going to be just like they say, them voices tell me so. And so the excerpt that I, want to, that I want to read from the book speaks to that issue of authenticity. It goes like this. The weightiest decisions of our lives are the most difficult and require the closest attention to our inner sense of knowing. Choosing a place to live, a life partner, a career, these are the pivotal moments that shape us and determine our destiny but we live in a culture that relentlessly and insidiously endeavors to seduce us onto a path of its choosing, irrespective of who we really are, blind to the unique qualities that truly define us. Perhaps the most enduring legacy of the Grateful Dead is the way the band and the community it birthed exposed the mainstream for its antagonism towards individualistic thinking and celebrated alternative, authentic lifestyles. That's one take on what makes the Grateful Dead so special. And, and for me, you know, it, it describes, you know, why I, why I love the Grateful Dead and why I've been a deadhead for the last 40 or 50 years or whatever, whatever it's been. And I will be, uh, till the day I die, the Grateful Dead has been and will continue to be the soundtrack of my life. And I've tried, 
I, I love a lot of different kinds of music. I've tried listening to all different kinds of music, and I, I always keep coming back. It's like a homecoming. Well, I know you and I talked just before the show that you know you are in Colorado, and Colorado obviously has a huge bluegrass presence between Planet Bluegrass and Telluride Bluegrass, and all the great bluegrass bands that have come out of Colorado, whether it's you know Leftover Salmon or String Cheese Incident or Yonder Mountain String Band, right, or a lot of the other guys that have played up there. But there's a, you know the whole Netherlands scene for years and years is kind of a, a bluegrass um, uh, centric zone yes. that's just put out so many great musicians and. You know, the last song we were going to play today to kind of end the show was a, a Peter Rohn composition that Garcia Band, I'd say, closed, you know, 90% of the shows that I saw them, they closed their second set with, which is Midnight Moonlight. And I don't think there's a bluegrass musician out there that at some point in their career hasn't played this song. Yes. So, and just to add on to that real quickly, the band Olden in the Way, I, I believe, I don't know this for sure, but it's, it would be hard to believe that there was anything recorded prior to this in the 1975 release of, of the Olden in the Way album, uh, which was all live, um, was where I learned and probably was the original recording of the song Moonlight, Mi Midnight Moonlight. Is it Moonlight? It's Midnight Moonlight, right? Yeah, Midnight Moonlight. They keep, they keep going back in the moonlight, in the midnight. Yeah. Back and forth, yeah, that's a, that's a great tune. Well, you know it's an old song when they talk about beg, steal, or borrow two nickels or a dime to call me on the phone. <laughs> and, yeah, right. I don't think there's a time in my life where I remember a payphone still being 10 cents, uh, much less you know being payphones at all. Yes, forget about the cost. They, they don't even exist anymore. I saw a movie a few days ago where there was a payphone, and it made me wonder if some some younger people might look at this uh, might look at this movie and say, what is that? My daughter asked me the other day, my seven-year-old daughter saw a payphone for maybe one of her first times. She goes, Dad, look, there's a phone on the street. I started laughing. I said, yeah, those, those used to be around all the, everywhere. You know, that was how we talked. And it's too big to fit in you your know? pocket. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, I've, always, I've always loved uh, Midnight Moonlight just because, uh, you know, again, when you think about lyrics that speak to you in a certain way, I've always um, had this feeling of, of coming to a realization too late. And when I think about Midnight Moonlight, the, uh, the, the second verse of, you know, kind of that mm -hmm. the last good morning sunshine will be the, the brightest you've ever seen as kind of your reckoning of, of realizing that, that you missed a great opportunity uh, is one that's always struck me well. And so it's been such a great jam that, that Jerry would play after you'd play the first verse and the second verse and play the jam and come back and play the second verse again has always been one that, you know, like it, it, it's such a, a, a fire way to end a show like that and Tangled Up in Blue were, you know, kind of the two set closers I'd always see. Tangled being my favorite, but but Midnight Moonlight always being um, a hard rocking way to end the night and just a, a really good way to, to kind of end a, a fun show, you know, seeing, seeing Jerry play. So with that, you know, Stu, come back anytime. We look forward to seeing the book. We look forward to reading the book. Hey, I really enjoy, ta I really enjoy talking to you. And, uh, you know, for those of you listening out there, uh, you can see uh, excerpts from The Deadhead Cyclist at deadheadcyclist.com and look for the book out sometime in 2022. Well, with that, thanks to Steve Sala. Thanks, as always, to Dan Humiston, our producer. Uh, I'm Rob Hunt, and uh, we'll see you guys next week on the Dead at Canvas show. And here's a little bit more of 228-1980 from Keene College, uh, the release of After Midnight. And here's the Midnight Moonlight to, to end the, uh, the evening.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.